Hello, Greenfluencers. Welcome to episode seven of season four. And today we've got a very special guest. His name is Tim Silverwood. And Tim's running a really cool organization called Ocean Impact Organization. And what they do is they want to find the best talent working on all things to do with the blue economy and to do with the ocean and really try and try and actually scale those startups and make them really awesome solutions to help tackle our plastic problem and to keep our oceans and ecosystems safe. So before I begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I am on, which are the Daruk people, and want to pay my respects to all Indigenous people, are both past, present and emerging. I think it's really important we respect that for over 70,000 years, Indigenous people have taken a lot of care in our oceans and how they've hunted and cared for the environment. And I think that's going to be a huge topic, which we will discuss with Tim. Um, so now I'd like to introduce Tim. And Tim's done some really awesome stuff he actually started his journey as a surfer, then he became an environmentalist, and then he started um, a really cool organization preventing plastic waste. And now he's working for Ocean Startups. And Tim's done some really cool stuff. He's been around the world and has done a few TED Talks. And he's also been all over the media for his amazing work in how do we reduce plastic waste, both at the high level to governments and also to young people. And yeah, I think his organization is doing some really awesome stuff. Um, in terms of accelerating startups, and we're very lucky to have him on. So welcome, Tim. Welcome to the Greenfluence podcast. Thanks for having me. Nice to be a part of the Greenfluencer community now. And so thank everyone for, for tuning in today. I wanted to begin with something you're quite passionate about, and that's the sea. And I was looking at one of the talks you did in 2021, and you talked about planet ocean instead of planet Earth. And I found that like super interesting. And I think you looked at the globe and how you mentioned it was all covered by the sea, all covered by the ocean. So in your words, how do you describe planet ocean? Yeah, I've really loved this term for quite some time and so definitely have increasingly been using it in presentations and whenever I get a chance to, to share my field of work with others. I just think that it's so indicative of the challenging situation that we find ourselves in as homo sapiens where all we really see is what's immediately around us because we live on terra firma we live on the earth part of our planet but of course that is not where most of the habitable space actually is of course we know those big stats like 71 percent of the earth's surface is blue and another big portion is of course covered in ice but what we probably don't think about is the fact that ocean is 14 kilometers deep in places and you start to realize that life occupies the entire depth of the ocean right the way to the surface so if you actually look at this and you look at the science around where life exists on this remarkable planet it is in the ocean. So I just love that we can provocate a little bit around this and make people think a little bit differently because, of course, when it comes to the crises that we face, be that in biodiversity or climate or oceans, really the biggest 
problems are being felt in the ocean and the biggest opportunities to turn that around also lie in the ocean. So we really need to bring the ocean front and center in people's thinking when they're really starting to assess how we actually maintain a healthy, long-term and prosperous relationship with this planet. I mean, the other beautiful part of it, of course, is that we should be doing these steps towards a sustainable future for our own selfish self-interest because the planet has been around and it's been quite fine for an extremely long time. It's really only this brief little moment that humans have disrupted the balance that is sending us into this spin and our species will be the one of many that will unfortunately not be able to remain. But if we want to stay here, we've got to try and keep these things in balance and keep those parameters safe because that is the way it has always been and the way it should always be. Yeah, awesome. And I, I love the point you've made how it's in our best interest, but we haven't really considered the ocean or we viewed it as an externality and something we can talk about later. But I think I think going back to the start and your upbringing in the Central Coast and, you know, like I'm guessing the ocean was quite an important part of your life and then how you're really into surfing. How did you build that connection to the sea? Was that something that was in your daily life from the start? Certainly it was strengthened and fostered through surfing, which is obviously a recreation, it's my sport, it's a very spiritual experience, spending so much time in the ocean, feeling vulnerable, having all those remarkable interactions with wild organisms. Um, but, you know, Australians, the vast majority of us do live within close proximity to the sea. So we're an island nation full of people who do have a relationship with oceans and waters. So I was born up in Cairns and from being a very young child would have had a lot of interactions with the ocean, day trips to the beach, getting a little bit more confident, but of course then getting into my teenage years and exploring that world of surfing, initially bodyboarding with my friends. And it became, of course, a, a massive addiction and it started to get my eyes open to traveling the world with my surfboard and that then opened me up to seeing how other cultures interact with oceans and waterways and so it really has been incredibly formative but simultaneously the central coast where I've spent the majority of my life I was fortunate enough to grow up on from the ages of about seven right the way through I left home in my early 20s on a bushland property. So it was quite rugged Australian bush. So when I wasn't playing in the ocean during my free time and I wasn't at school and studying, I was in this beautiful natural bush setting. So protecting the environment is just naturally a big part of my life. And so that led me to choosing to, to study it in my latter years of high school and then going to university to further explore the field of sustainability and what it actually might look like to forge a career in this sector. Yeah, amazing. And I love how that upbringing sort of linked to your study and then university and then now what you do. And I want to touch on your university experience. So having studied a bachelor's of sustainable resource management and you graduated back in 2006. And I think I read somewhere you didn't find a lot of contentment in the sense that a lot of the jobs that you applied for, um, they sort of didn't give you what you were after. I think that's something that a lot of young people face these days in the sense that how do you find that purpose in your career? And then I think you went surfing for a little bit. So how did all that happen? 
Yeah, it was really interesting. You you go into your field of study all fired up and interested in learning as much as you could so you can take that away and do something meaningful in a career sense and in a life sense. And so for me, I find it really challenging when doing my studies in the University of Newcastle, one of the largest coal ports in the world, heavily industrialized city. And I found a lot of the graduates in years before me and those around me were going off to work in these incredibly polluting industries, really in these tokenistic roles as environmental officers or sustainability officers where they weren't making any real meaningful impact to the greater challenges that we face. And similarly, we had people going to work for local government. And again, it just didn't feel like you were utilising this incredible knowledge and passion that you had to any great effect. So I literally couldn't bring myself to even contemplate uh, a career step like that. And that's why for me, I felt quite comfortable putting things on pause for a little bit and saying, well, you know what, there's a little bit more personal development and a little bit more living that I could do that I feel is going to give me not only more experience to come back around at my career, but also just to sort of wait and see if there was better opportunities on the horizon. And that's where I just did a lot more traveling of the world. Surfing was a part of it, snowboarding, just going and experiencing different cultures. Because to me, uh, and I've said it quite a few times, you know, there's your educational tertiary studies, but there's nothing wrong with going and doing a Bachelor of Life as well, particularly if you're working in sustainability or development studies. Go and see the problems firsthand. Go and interact with the communities that are on that front line, and you're going to be able to bring so much more to it at a later stage. And so, funnily enough, after all this time going and experiencing these different cultures, I came back around and I saw these environmental problems that weren't very prominent in my studies, like ultimately litter and the issues around waste. They really didn't feature massively as part of my studies. But having seen the problems firsthand, I got really, really interested. And I started to think, well, no one's really doing the kind of work that I think needs to be done to raise awareness and to bring this onto the public agenda. And that's where I found myself focusing my efforts in future years. Amazing. And then you mentioned about this Bachelor of Life and traveling all over the world and seeing how different countries look at waste and how waste is resourced and, you know, in terms of what infrastructure they have to manage waste. Um, in that journey, did you see a considerable difference in comparing to Australia with other nations? And were there some learnings that you had or, or opportunities that you saw that we could bring to Australia, for example? It was full of constant juxtapositions. Of course, the the biggest thing of all after years of traveling throughout Southeast Asia and uh, you know, surfing through Indonesia and traveling all the way through India from the very southern tip right the way through to Kashmir, the, the pollution, the, the seeing and witnessing the plastics in the environment firsthand was, of course, very confronting because you don't um, often see that in in sort of cultures like Australia, certainly in areas where we have good education and good 
um, interaction with the problem. Uh, but the juxtaposition really was when you were you know, on a train in India, for example, and you'd see the chai walla come around with the beautiful finger crafted chai cup that of course was just made of the earth and people would have their lovely hot chai and throw it out the window and you know the the railway track would be littered with just bits of soil that were returned beautifully back to nature or if you're in an island of Indonesia being served food on earth and it's thrown over the shoulder and you know a few weeks later it's back as compost into the soil so to then see that juxtaposed with the same behavior being adopted for plastics which of course lasts forever was very challenging and so I became obviously alert to it but also very understanding of what the complexity of what I was witnessing was because these cultures had for time immemorial interacted with waste in a beautiful and harmonious way. It was only because of the influence of the advanced cultures and westernization and globalization that a petroleum-based product was being introduced that was having devastating consequences, blocking sewer systems and causing flooding and doing all these things to wild creatures, watching holy cows on the street eating plastic bags next to eating the vegetable material biomass that they've been eating for, for such a long time. So my head just went into overdrive thinking about it and realizing that we had this impending crisis. Obviously, it was already current, but I could just see that we weren't engaged in a rich conversation about the perils of plastic. This is back in 2007, 2008, um, and we rapidly needed to. So that's, I think, kind of what paved the way for Take Three for the Sea to come onto the scene and get immediate traction and a wealth of opportunities because everyone also was starting to see this problem and realize how big it could become. Yeah, so I think it's a big problem and this is around 2009. I'm guessing back then there was a bit of a different way of thinking in a lot of the environmental stuff was seen to be done by a lot of NGOs. I'm guessing the uptake for businesses wasn't quite high. It was sort of seen as an additional problem. So were there any challenges in forming Take 3? I know there was a huge opportunity, but what was the initial reception in, in starting it? And how did the public take it on initially? It was really interesting. So yeah, if you go back in time to that period around 2009 you of course had awareness campaigns around litter and clean up australia day and keep australia beautiful all these initiatives very much targeted at let's beautify our suburbs let's have tidy towns and clean beaches really from an aesthetic point of view and then in the scientific sense, you had this emerging field of work around marine debris. What happens with this item, these items when they make their way into oceans and waterways and what are the consequences in terms of entanglement and ingestion? But the real opportunity was around actually calling it out for what it actually is, which is plastic pollution. So I think take three came in at that time when we were just transitioning away from litter and marine debris and getting a little bit more vocal and a little bit more pointy with this is a problem and there are people who are responsible for this problem. So in terms of establishing Take 3 for the Sea, we didn't face immediately any real challenges in terms of agitating uh, corporates. We were very sort of educational and and positive right it was just like hey there's a problem but you can be part of the solution by just 
interacting with this idea of taking three for the C. And of course, if we all do this, we can get somewhere to solving the problem. But certainly fast forward a few years on past that when I started to get a lot more involved in the activism side of it and taking it to the perpetrators, you know, protesting in front of the corporate offices, sneaking into company AGMs and asking the chairman what he is doing to solve this problem or why aren't they supporting um, container deposit schemes in the, in the case of Coca-Cola. So at that time, yes, of course, there was a little bit more um, challenges around how to navigate that, particularly when you're trying to get funding, you're trying to be a charity, so you're trying to remain apolitical, but you're also really passionate about creating change. So there was all sorts of challenges, but the biggest challenge of all is just that simple one around starting a a non-profit organization or starting a business. It's not something easy, and you can never imagine that you're just gonna do it one day and everything's gonna be rosy and easy. It is always going to be complicated and you need to be prepared for a very winding, tough, bumpy, but also very rewarding journey uh, when you get these things started. Thank you for sharing that. I found the concept quite straightforward to understand, but proved to be highly effective. How did you go about sort of looking at this concept of take three for the C? Because I feel like a lot of organizations have quite complex business models that can be hard to understand, but this in theory wasn't quite simple and had the collective message. So how did that come about? Yeah, interestingly, so I'm one of three co-founders of Take Three for the Sea, and I was the third one to join. So Amanda and Roberta had already come up with the idea of encouraging people to take three pieces of rubbish when they left a beach before I joined. So I'd already had my history in terms of exposure to the problem and being motivated to do something. And I was trying my hand at a few different things and interacting with my network to find out how I could best come in and contribute to creating positive change. And so it was through a series of fortunate events that I was made aware of what Mandy and Roberta were working on. And I said, look, I'd like to come in and help by making a documentary about the work that you're doing. I think I already knew at that stage that this was my golden opportunity to join something which had a lot of scope. Um, So we made the film and by the time the film was done and we were ready to launch, I'd been welcomed in as a co-founder. We established and incorporated uh, the organization and the rest is somewhat history. So that all happened quite quickly. I met Amanda and Roberta in probably about September 2009 and we launched the organization by May of 2010. And I was there for 10 years up until my departure in uh, February 2020. Awesome. I love how you went behind their collective vision and, and in the end were there for 10 years. That's that's really fascinating. I want to touch back on your experiences actually going to corporates and sort of knocking on their doors and talking from CEOs. Like, do you have any interesting things you want to share from that? How do you go about convincing the big boss that oceans are important? Look, quite often your first entry into those, or certainly my experiences into those big corporates would be through public affairs or some of those people that are on the front line defending the brand from the public. And so you'd quite often see and meet these people who were completely charming, able to say 
all the right things just to buy that little bit more time, almost using you as a pulse check on what is swelling up behind us, that we were almost like the arrowhead of the community sentiment. So it was fascinating. It was frustrating, of course, at times, but I was pragmatic. I knew that there was no real way these giants, and we're talking you know, predominantly here, I was very actively involved in the campaign to introduce the 10 cent deposit refund on bottles and cans, what's called a container deposit scheme. So I had incredible exposure to politicians and to corporate leaders and everyone involved, the waste industry, the recycling industry. And all that really got us over the line in the end was public sentiment and the momentum of the community. Uh, everyone who we spoke to, be it politicians or on the corporate side, they could see that something was brewing. They just needed to wait to see that the dam burst and there was no possible way they could get out of it. And that's essentially what happened. But they fight and fight and fight tooth and nail because their business models are, are based primarily on profit and a lot of these cases they fear that there is going to be too much expense involved in any of these changes so they'd much rather see the status quo remain and so that was a very very insightful experience and i suppose if you then fast forward to the work i'm doing now which in the instance of you know plastic pollution for example it might be on innovative new biomaterials, for example, that are beautifully circular by design and by nature. And I say, well, if that material could get to scale and could rival petroleum and meet all these other criteria, it would be adopted by these large companies as long as it reaches first and foremost the economic motivator and of course if the spin doctors and the public affairs team can find a creative way of of making it um, a better alternative then they will but you've got to get the economics right or you've got to mobilize the community to make them do it because there's not a lot of motivation for them to do things early because it just doesn't stick into their business model yeah, I guess the business case is one thing, but that's one of the main reasons for Ocean's Impact, right? You want to start these startups, you know, with the foundations and mentorship quite early. And we'll definitely get into that soon. But going back to Take 3 for the Sea, I think what was really cool was you guys had an impact both at the grassroots level, even, even for young people, but also in terms of public policy and the top end of town. How are you able to impact both those levels and what were the ways in which you did that? Yeah, in many ways, we could have just, focus on the education piece, which maybe would have contributed to the same end game regardless. Because one of the most beautiful things about the grassroots engaging the community and educating young people is that you're handing over this warm ball of energy and saying, right, now you go and do what you want to do with it. And that's so indicative. But I had some of the most warmest moments in my career have been where I've had a job application from someone who said, oh, you came to my school and taught us about Take 3 for the Sea 10 years ago. I've now done my studies and I'd like to work for you. Like Just things like that, it just blows me away to know how many people have been moved and mobilised 
as a result of our work and gone on to do all these great things and to contribute to change. But of course, for me, I am activist by nature. So when it came to making sure I was satisfied and engaged as much as I possibly could, because you do it, there's a huge amount of challenges associated with building and running a non-profit organization, not in the least part, the financial remuneration that you, you might be forced to, to settle for in those, in those stages. So those things like being an activist and getting to travel around the world and to sort of build my community and my network, they were the things that kept me going um, and, and made sure I was highly satisfied to get through the hard times. So yeah, it was, um, it was great to do both ends of the spectrum. And now in many ways, I'm sort of doing a part of the spectrum that I hadn't been focused so much on before, which is, well, what does it look like to, to build businesses that can improve the way that we do things? Because I've seen how the bad guys operate and I've seen how rusted on they are and that they don't want to change. But I also see that in all these other sectors, there's disruptors out there that are doing things differently. They're innovating and some of them are growing really quickly and they're overtaking the dinosaurs. And so if I could think about my next impact through OIO, it's like how many amazing, disruptive, awesome businesses can we support to overtake as many dinosaurs as possible and make it so it's not only achieving sustainability objectives, but it's also reforming the way that we do capitalism. And so, yeah, it's a pretty exciting place to be at this stage of my, my career and my journey. Yeah, definitely super exciting. I was formerly at KPMG and we had the Nature Positive Challenge. And um, one of the winners was called Ulu. Um, and they and I'm sure you might have heard of them. For um, sure. It's really cool, the work they're doing with seaweed and things like that. So. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a definitely an exciting space. And, you know, you I think you speak so fondly of Take 3 and, and no doubt so many exciting things, challenges. And I'm sure stepping down would, in 2020 would have been a hard choice to make. Um, in the end, why did you go about doing so? Look, it was it was difficult in terms of how I wanted to approach this significant transition being such an integral part being you know the founding ceo of the organization and everything that came along with it but i'm sure everyone listening in no one is probably imagining themselves staying in the same company for 10 years right that is a very outdated idea that you work for one company and you stay with them forever so of course i knew one day i would be leaving and, and doing something different so i was enthusiastic about what that might be uh, it just so happened that I found myself meeting my co-founder at Ocean Impact Organization, Nick Chiarelli, who had come from the startup world. He's a, he's a finance guy, chartered accountant, chief financial officer, had been in startups and seen what they can do with the right support, how they can scale. But he's also a, a diver and a surfer and a real conscious ocean person. So he sort of was getting his cogs turning around how you could do what's happening to support traditional startups in financial services or prop tech or med tech and all these other tech sectors and thinking there's got to be a way we can do this for solutions that ultimately improve the health of the ocean. So it's thanks to Nick again. I see it turns out I actually haven't come up with any of the ideas of the enterprises I've been involved with. Nick had the idea, but we did 
collaborate very closely when, once I expressed my interest in what he was doing and we crafted a very strategic exit from tape three and a commencement with OIO. So the entire process of meeting Nick, deciding I wanted to work with him up until leaving Take 3 and starting OIO was probably about a 15-month process. So again, very calculated, very considered, um, and ultimately successful. Yeah, right. So then this leads us to like 2020, and at the time, it's sort of the start of COVID, and the startup space is, is really taking off here. And I think three years ago, climate tech wasn't like a huge thing. And then that's when you started OIO. And I think it'd be really good, firstly, to just explain to the audience, what does it mean to invest or have a startup in oceans? What are some examples of the work that a company could be doing if they're considered to be an ocean startup, so to speak? Yeah, so we've already, at the start of this conversation, acknowledged that the oceans are the center of the planet. So in many ways, it's not hard to create a tie between ultimately improving the health of the ocean by commercializing a new solution or a new technology but of course we're much more sort of specific than that so we've for a long time broken our impact areas into ones related to ocean health it could be shipping and transportation it could be data and monitoring trying to get information could be ocean energy of course we've got fishing and aquaculture so there's all these things that are blue you know they're blue economy you are touching salt water but of course you can then go far away from land and realize that you can have a vastly improved positive impact as well i mean packaging for example and waste systems and recycling and circular solutions looking at farming and runoff from the land looking at waterways looking at biofilters so the the incredible breadth of solutions is astonishing and one of the things that we intentionally did with oio from the outset is say we are agnostic to the type of solution you are working on as long as you can ultimately illustrate a positive impact to ocean health then we want to talk to you so when you're applying for our programs be it the accelerator program where you do get investment and support and you go through a, a six-month program or whether it's pitch fest which is running at the moment where you might win a fifty thousand dollar prize or get connected to a range of uh, opportunities to enhance and to build your enterprise you will be required to outline how you are improving ocean health so yeah you can just go to our website look at any of those programs and you will start to see the criteria that we're looking for, but we're always constantly surprised. There's been a lot of examples of applications that have come through where someone who's worked in oceans for 15 years, I still go, wow, I did not know that type of solution existed, or I did not even know that problem was as big as you've just illustrated. And I'm very interested in learning how you plan to scale and make a big impact. Yeah, just speaking of those problems, do you have any that really come to your mind that are really cool? And I guess the problem is one thing, but also what do you look for in a founder that makes you want to be like, okay, they should be in our program? Yeah, in many ways, it's, it's a fascinating process. So let's take, for example, the Ocean Impact Accelerator program, which it would have opened for applications in January this year. We would have received over 100 applications and on paper, 
They all look fantastic, but of course we're getting very good insights from the data fields about the stage they're at because we've got to recognise that it's the right time for them to be in the kind of program that we can offer and the investment that we can offer. So then you're whittling it down and looking and seeing, okay, well now we've got a, a, you know, I think we ended up with about 36, for example, that made it to the interview stage. And then, of course, you're going to that interaction with the founder and with the leadership team, and you're really starting to identify, okay, are they matching up with what they've said on their application? And all that due diligence that you get from interacting face-to-face with people is a fascinating experience and one at which I'm new to but learning a lot about. And ultimately, we, uh, involving our advisors and our leadership team at OIO, do that initial assessment. But the wonderful thing about the Accelerator program is, is when it gets to that final stage, we might in this instance present 15 startups to members of our investor community. So then you have the experience and the knowledge and the insight and the instinct from these seasoned investors who are then coming in to do their level of due diligence. And what you ultimately end up with is six startups that seem to be the best fit from the ones that applied in that particular year and they are the ones that receive the support and get to have the entire experience and so the startups in the accelerator program this year there's six of them three from australia uh, one called hullbot a robotics company from sydney they've been going for quite a few years now and are really ready to to sell more units and to scale their technology so Their initial solution is a robot which cleans boat hulls. Now, this might seem obscure. Some of their biggest customers at the moment are actually people who own yachts and they want their yachts to go faster because any time you have biofoul on the bottom of a yacht, it slows it down. But it turns out biofoul is also problematic because on a motorized vehicle, it is creating drag, which means it's using more fossil fuels. They're also a big problem for invasive species. And so suddenly you unpack this solution. You go, wow, if you can get your robot to clean boat hulls, we can end up with more efficient vessels, less carbon used, and we can avoid using these incredibly toxic paints that are currently used, these anti-fouling paints that are currently used, which are very, very problematic. They're biocides. So Hullbot, fantastic. They're in. They're doing great stuff. We've also got another incredible startup from... Byron Bay, he's an activist, a guy called Andre Burrell, who's bought into a company called Sharkstop. Sharkstop have got a material which is incredibly strong, like Kevlar strong material that can go into a wetsuit for surfing and diving. And it means if you do have one of these unlikely negative interactions with a shark, the chances of it actually being fatal are so massively reduced because a shark bite is a laceration which then gets into those vital arteries and then you die of blood loss. So this technology could be transformative. It could be sold into wetsuit manufacturers or even swimsuits, people that are swimming in the ocean and could really help to change the stigma around sharks, which is essential because if we keep going about it the way we have been, we will lose sharks. We're already losing sharks. There's some that are so highly endangered and threatened because of the way we've thought of them, but they are absolutely integral to the marine food chain. We've got another startup from Port Stephens that have got a really exciting model to bring aquaculture, land-based aquaculture, to more communities around the nation, get people much more aware of what it takes to 
grow and supply seafood-based protein and doing it in a way with negligible environmental impacts that can decrease the pressure on the oceans that we're currently exerting through the seafood sector. And then we've got three from the States, two robotics companies, one called Clean Earth Rovers and one called so we've got Azul Bio doing a probiotic for coral reefs. So they're actually looking at how they can understand the microbiome of ecosystems like coral reefs identify how you could actually supplement what they require to be more resilient in the face um, of, for example, warming waters, like in the case of the coral reef, and helping to enhance and build more robust and vibrant systems. And then we've got Ecospears, who are actually based out of Florida, and they've got a technology to remove persistent organic pollutants from the benthic sediment layer in waterways. So you go around even places like Sydney Harbour where they used to create dioxins and really gnarly chemicals like Agent Orange and pesticides, you end up with these persistent pollutants, these forever chemicals in the sediment. And the only way to remove them at the moment is to either dredge them out and do some really costly manoeuvres to, to neutralise it or to cap it. You can cap the whole system, but they've actually got some NASA licensed technology which sort of uses diffusion to actually extract it using these spears and then they've got a a very low impact model to dispose of them so yeah crazy diverse technologies Um, last year we had ones that were working on plastic pollution and single-use plastics and it's just it's just constantly amazing yeah that's that's awesome definitely a lot of like science and research that goes into those and leads me to my next question because i feel like just the nature of oceans and the enormity of the solution you would require a lot of r d and how do you get it from r d to commercialization i'm sure that's a bit of a process um so how do you help startups on that journey from actually commercializing the idea so that's a good segue to speak to i've mentioned the accelerator program and the ocean impact pitch fest The third main innovation program that we currently run is called the Ocean Impact Ideation Program. And that's specifically looking at people working in ocean sciences and making sure they are fully aware of what is required to commercialize their science and their technology. So currently we've got some really amazing PhDs in that program learning those skill sets and we did it last year as well and it was incredibly amazing to see those results so we understand that if oio is here and wants to reach our bold objectives that we've set ourselves uh, to really make australia one of the world leaders in commercializing these scalable solutions we need to be supporting the pipeline right the way through from academia all the way through to scale up stage so At the moment, we're only offering scholarships to around 15 marine scientists a year to do the ideation program, but our ambition for the future is to make it available to almost anyone, anyone working in the ocean science with an interest in learning how to commercialize. We want to make sure that they have the ability to get that knowledge because if we don't do that, then we're missing a huge opportunity for the future. Amazing. No, I really like the process of getting ideas out of academia. The next thing I wanted to ask is... in terms of technology, uh, how do you incorporate AI in ocean solutions? Have you seen a lot of examples of this? Increasingly, we are. In the Ocean Impact Pitch Fest last year, we had a really interesting AI solution come forward looking at this very archaic problem with monitoring 
what happens on fishing vessels. So a huge problem around global fisheries is that what happens out there at sea is a long way away from our eyes and our ears and therefore the eyes and the ears of the regulators. And it turns out a lot of the monitoring that takes place on fishing vessels is that they're required to have a video observation system on the deck and then those recordings go away and they are manually reviewed by a small department and probably occasionally maybe someone spots something and there might be a, a fine issued. So a young student called Alexander Dungate realised this through his studies, found out there was some ginormous backlog of monitoring required and so came up with um, on-deck fisheries AI and essentially he's trying to uh, utilise machine learning tools and AI to make sure we can get real live active feeds to decks and obviously using those tools spot immediately when a non-target species has been captured and therefore help authorities monitor this. We had one in 2020, Orbital EOS, who have tapped into the feeds from the European Space Agency and other open sources to utilise satellite data on, again, what is happening at the ocean that we can't otherwise see. And it turns out their main problem they're tackling is around illegal dumping of oil at sea. So we hear a lot about what happens when there's those catastrophes with an oil rig or an oil tanker having a negative experience and therefore this huge spill. But a bigger source of oil pollution in the ocean is actually the dump, the intentional dumping from these tankers, be it bunker fuel or for whatever reason, they are dumping this. And again, they'll just go and do it a long way away from land where nobody can possibly watch. But of course, satellites can. So their AI can detect those spill marks um, on the world's ocean surface and go and alert authorities. So I suspect there will be a, a treasure trove of future opportunities around AI um, getting involved with, with the ocean impact space for sure. Yeah, awesome. And, and they seem to be very focused on, I think, preventative measures or early detection measures. Definitely super exciting and in terms of plastics in the oceans. Have you seen an application of that, like in terms of looking at plastics in the oceans and how can we use AI to reduce that? There were certainly some technologies I saw quite some years ago around you know, drone surveillance and utilising that to detect and therefore um, intervene with plastics pollution. But yeah, I haven't seen anything in recent times that, that rings a bell, but I'm sure there's a lot more out there that I'm not aware of. I know that to date we've had around about 950 startups and entrepreneurs apply to OIO's programs and you know, it's incredible we do those initial light reviews as the applications are coming in. And again, you're just constantly mind blown. But when it comes to those that have actually come through our programs and been supported, we're up to around 74 now, which is uh, still a pretty impressive number in three and a half years. That is for sure. So what's the end goal, say in five years, for example, is there opportunity for funding, like a funding pathway? What do you guys want to achieve in the next couple of years, ultimately? Yeah, look, we, we set ourselves three objectives right at the outset. Uh, the first was to accelerate and support 100 startups. So we're almost there, which is nice to have that first objective almost delivered in three and a half years. The second two are big, right? They're going to require 
a lot of effort and a lot of support. So the second is to see $100 million of funding come into the sector. So we've raised a little bit of investment so far to support the, the 12 startups that have come through the two cohorts of the Accelerator program, but we want to really rapidly ramp that up, see more startups coming through our Accelerator programs, but also be available to offer growth stage funding to the right startups. So yeah, we're working towards a, an ambition of establishing a later stage growth fund at the moment. Um, and the third big objective, which is the sort of the dream state, is like I said before, what would it look like if Australia was seen as a world leader in a place where you could grow and scale these regenerative, restorative, transformative solutions to improve the way we treat the ocean? Now, in many ways, I look at Australia and think, wow, look at the institutions that we have, look at the knowledge that we have in the people who understand the ocean, who have invested their life in the academic part of knowing the ocean, knowing what it needs. But how often does that advice then never actually go and make an impact? It stays in some drawer somewhere, or maybe someone has come up with an idea for a solution that didn't get the funding and the support to scale. So I just am so driven, as is Nick, my co-founder, and our board of directors and everyone Let's do what it takes to really give Australia the best chance possible to become something of a leader. And that just, I mean, there you go. I can see, totally see the next five, 10 years of, of my life, of my career invested in that ambition. Um, so let's see how we go. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and we'll definitely be cheering you on. So super exciting for Ocean Impact in the next few years. Um, Tim, going to head to the speed round now. A couple of quick questions. Um, so firstly, what sea creature would you be and why? Uh, I think the sea turtle. That's obviously embedded in the, the logo of Take 3 for the Sea. Um, probably all remember those scenes in Finding Nemo. The, the turtle is a pretty cruisy guy, but they can move fast and they can, yes. they can, they can make a big impact when they want to. But I do love diving and snorkeling and surfing with with sea turtles they've got this majestic quality um they've got this ancient wisdom but they're also so vulnerable to things like plastic pollution and discarded fishing nets and bycatch so i'm going to say the sea turtle very good and that was sort of like the animal for take three wasn't it in many ways it totally was you know it was in the logo we got to interact a lot with institutions who were helping rehabilitate turtles and release them back into the wild. They really capture the imagination of so many people. Awesome. Um, next question. What advice would you give to your younger self? Just uh, know that it's all going to be okay. I think one of the things that happened with my studies and my career that felt a little bit unorthodox at the time was taking a bit of a bit longer, you know, going and doing, like I said, that Bachelor of Life and being able to remain calm during that time because, you know, I could have been in a different family or different circumstances where the pressure would have been, no, go and take that job working for the mining company because you're going to be able to buy a house and you're going to be able to go and do all those things that young men are meant to do. But I stayed true to my gut and my instinct and I said, no, I'm, I'm going to find a way through but it might not be orthodox, but it was a bit stressful. So I'd say everything's going to be okay. Um, and yeah, that would probably be my advice. Awesome. 
And lastly, um, where can listeners go to find out more about yourself and Ocean Impact and all the other stuff you're doing? Yeah, hopefully pretty easy to find us online. I think if you type in Ocean Impact, we're the first hit. Um, search me, you'll find probably loads of other podcasts and things um, to explore if you're interested. But yeah, certainly Ocean Impact is always on the lookout for, for great talent. There's always intern opportunities if people are interested. And of course, if you've got a startup or you're interested in the ideation program, get onto our email newsletter, follow us on social media, because hopefully we can support you to make your greatest impact at some point in the future. Awesome. And just for everyone listening, Tim has an awesome TED Talk. It was from 2011. It is quite interesting talking about his time when he was surfing and how he really saw the problems firsthand of plastic pollution. So would would highly recommend that as well. Tim, well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on today. I know you're very busy with the Pitch Fest and everything else you have going on, but thanks for making the time. And it was really awesome to hear about your journey in, in finding purpose and using Take 3 and then your support and, and passion for ocean to the environment. It was really awesome to see and, and thank you so much for sharing your journey. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you.